Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Hi, everyone. This Quarium episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes. So click on the link, answer three questions and get CME credit. It's an episode with lots of food for thought. I know for myself, I will not look at illness scripts the same way again. And with that, cue the intro. Hi everyone, Cindy Finn here. Welcome back to another episode of Poop Beats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Zhang Huang. Hey everyone. By now, you probably know that Cindy and I like to try something a little different with each episode. Well, some of our listeners have pointed out that our cases to date have essentially all been presented from the perspective of an inpatient physician, and so we decided to change that. For this episode, we're going to present you a case where the patient initially presented to an outpatient provider, and the diagnosis was made purely in the outpatient setting. Our discussant is a general internist who practices both inpatient and outpatient medicine, who is invited to solve this case wearing his clinic hat. And at the end of the episode... We'll get to hear from the clinician who made the final diagnosis in real life, right in his office. Without further ado, let's hear the case first from Dr. Shreya Travedi. A 65-year-old man visits his primary care physician's office. He hasn't seen his doctor for several years, and he says he's lost his appetite. And for the past two months, he's been feeling vaguely fatigued. And while his exercise tolerance is fair, he just overall feels less energetic than usual. He thinks maybe because he left the gym and he's no longer doing aerobic exercise, he's been more sedentary because of that. But he's not troubled. He says he's still walking around without limitations and says in other respects, he's in his usual state of health. When asked specifically, he denies any fevers, chills, night sweats, bleeding, bruising. He's unsure about weight loss. In terms of past medical history, he was diagnosed with major depressive disorder 20 years ago. He sees a mental health provider regularly, and his symptoms are well-controlled on bupropion for many years. He also has mild intermittent asthma, for which he takes albuterol inhaler as needed. He also has a heart murmur, which he's known about since he was a teenager. Not on any other meds, over-the-counters, or herbals. He doesn't use tobacco, drinks alcohol occasionally, and denies any illicit substances. In terms of family history, he remembers his mother was diagnosed with ovarian and breast cancer as well as his sister and mother were diagnosed with mitral valve disease, and his uncle on his mom's side had leukemia. On exam, he's a middle-aged man with no particularly surprising findings, specifically his vitals are normal, he appears well-nourished, 
there's a soft late systolic murmur heard best at the apex that doesn't appreciably change with positioning or valsalva. His lungs are clear, and then his abdomen extremities are unremarkable. So that brings us to the end of this patient's first office visit. What do you think? And what would you have done at this point? Take a moment to collect your thoughts, and we'll hear how our expert discussant approached the case after the break. Welcome back. This week, Zhang and I sat down with Dr. Isaac Holmes, a general internist who splits his time between the inpatient ward and the medicine clinic at Bellevue Hospital, who was also one of my favorite clinic preceptors back in my residency days. So, you know, the the original, the initial information um, is very vague, uh, which is very true to clinic. And you know, my initial thought was. There's sort of two broad types of patients that come to clinic with complaints. I mean, there's the other separate set of people who are coming with chronic diseases that you're actively managing or who just want a routine exam and some screening. But when people have complaints, I feel like they tend to fall into one of two categories. There's people who are very hyper aware and have a lot of very specific complaints. And then there's people who are less uh, aware of their own self, maybe and have just know they don't feel well but are very uh have a great deal of difficulty explaining why they don't feel well being able to to verbalize exactly what feels bad to them or what feels different and so this case at least the initial part really uh fell into that second category of somebody who is coming to clinic saying i feel bad but i'm having a hard time really explaining why i feel bad my approach is really about Trying to pin people down with questioning about how they feel bad, and my practice may be different from many because there are a lot of different languages spoken in my exam room, and often that can it can be a language issue or an interpreter issue, and so asking the same question in a little bit different way can be very helpful. I will say that I often ask people specific questions about how they're engaging in their personal and professional lives when they are. Don't seem to be able to characterize exactly the symptoms that they're feeling as a way to get at how much functional impairment there is in their day to day life from these symptoms. And maybe I'll be more specific. Like, was he still working full time, or did he quit his job, go down to half time? Was he still uh, engaged? I don't remember now whether he he says he's single. Whether he has kids and whether he's participatory and what's going on with his kids, or he knows what's going on with his family, or if he'd been more withdrawn from his family life and from his work. So we don't have time to show you his whole initial reaction, but I was impressed by how he really spent a lot of time talking about the specific questions he would ask the patient and what he would look for on physical exam. Yeah, hearing him say this reminds me how I really don't get the chance to see how other doctors interview patients anymore. Now that I'm in attending, anyone else feel this way? When I do get to observe an expert, it's in morning report or noon conference, and I'm hearing how they interpret and organize and manipulate data. But how clinicians elicit that information from their patients in the first place—that has got to be an equally important step in the reasoning process, and probably even the most important because everything else is downstream. So our discussant himself calls attention to how the very format of our exercise can't really capture the essence of what he does in his office. This reminds me much more about precepting a case than it does about seeing a patient. Because when I see a patient, 
I have the opportunity to observe the patient and their behavior directly. And that means a lot to me as a, as a outpatient clinician. How did they walk to the room? How did they respond to their name? How do they look? Do they look wasted, cachectic? Do they look like well engaged? Do they look like they're carrying out the, their, um, everyday tasks? Spending a lot of time in clinic trying to answer diagnostic questions makes you very, uh, thoughtful about the way you examine patients because that's your, and the way that you, you take a history. Those are your diagnostic tests. When we think about the diagnostic process, we often think about the hypothesis generation and then obtaining data or tests to prove or disprove your hypothesis. And one might be under the impression that clinicians always ask pointed questions with certain diagnosis in mind. But that's not true all the time. Dr. Holmes here is asking these questions to build a richer context first. That will later be the basis of his diagnostic process. He's not satisfied by the fact that he cannot feel, touch, smell, interrogate a live person in front of him. And the missing information is valuable in helping him build an impression. Right. And in contrast, the tests that he asks for at this point are pretty basic and sparse. He orders a complete blood count, a basic metabolic panel, a hemoglobin A1c, a hepatic panel, given his drinking history. And of course, he orders arguably the best test in an outpatient clinician's diagnostic arsenal, time. I'd probably see him back for the two-month exam first, try and get a sense of his, if his symptoms had changed, characterize if he was really having weight loss, um, do a repeat examination and see if anything had changed on his examination, uh, and if his functional impairments had progressed at all. So labs start trickling in from his first visit. His CBC shows he's anemic with a hemoglobin of 11.5, an MCV of 87, hematocrit of 36. He's also thrombocytopenic to 87,000. His white count is normal at 5.2. His basic metabolic panel is completely normal. His hepatic panel is also unremarkable, but his albumin is slightly low at 3.4. His hemoglobin A1c is normal, and two months after his initial visit, he returns for his follow-up. So it's interesting. Interesting labs. I think it really guides us in our like care of this patient. The labs are markedly abnormal, uh, and really specifically markedly abnormal. Like for a 65 year old man with generalized fatigue, feeling tired, uh, and weakness with this CBC, I, I say I'm like alarmed about what could be going on with him. I think a little bit you can be hard-pressed to come up with a totally benign reason for someone to have this CBC. It's a, it's a pretty abnormal CBC. The fact that it's thrombocytopenia and anemia uh, and that it's a normocytic anemia probably argues against things like chronic blood loss. It's really arguing more towards either an absorptive process or probably more likely a bone marrow-based process. Um, it immediately makes me think about uh, hematologic malignancies. The fact that he doesn't have a big whopping white count certainly argues against a acute leukemia or even a chronic leukemia in an elderly patient like CLL and points more towards a lymphoma-type process. I guess the other things are uh, chronic inflammatory disorders that might cause you to have uh, thrombocytopenia and like a, a low-grade anemia with a norm, uh, normocytosis. Other occult infections, um, they're definitely on that differential. Again, he's been afebrile. He didn't have a white count. You're wondering about infections that maybe don't drive uh, 
like a big leukocytosis and febrile reaction, so atypical type infections. When I hear the complaint fatigue, I have a set of initial diagnostic tests that I typically fall back on: the, the CBC, the the thyroid, the basal metabolic, etc. When people hear anemia, most people react with the question: "Well, is it macro or normal or microcytic?" While sending out the usual panel of iron studies, B12, folate, the a smear, a reticulum, the quote-unquote anemia panel. Same here, but that's not what our discussant is doing here. He is in full inductive reasoning mode. Listening to Doctor Holmes' thinking process, I realize how much I rely on my algorithms and routine panels in working up common complaints. It's not just you, Cindy. This kind of stereotyped see abnormality order panel behavior is common enough among clinicians that it has its own name in the literature: the Casablanca strategy. This is a term that was coined by Pat Crosscarry, Doctor Crosscarry. I think many of you know. A renowned expert in cognitive problem solving in medicine. Now, to be honest, I've never watched this movie, so I had to consult Wikipedia for a plot synopsis. And please insert your joke about millennials here. But Crosscarry calls it the Casablanca strategy because apparently, at the end of the movie, the chief of police character orders his men to quote round up the usual suspects. Right. So sending the anemia panel is one example. Another example would be reflexively ordering PTH vitamin Ds,、uh, PTHRP to work up hypercalcemia. The Casablanca strategy is so frequently utilized. I was surprised to see that Doctor Holmes chose not to adapt it. Well, even though we all use this strategy from time to time, I think we tend to be reflexively disdainful of this approach. It feels unsophisticated, amateurish. I mean, Sherlock Holmes doesn't order panels, right? He deduces. He makes amazing inferences based on small pieces of critical data. But Isaac Holmes doesn't get to choose his cases, and he certainly doesn't get to spend a whole book unraveling them. Isaac Holmes gets 15 minutes in his clinic office, and that's tops if he's lucky. If he doesn't have to unjam his printer or call for a prior off or lose his progress note. Crosscarry writes that the main benefit of the Casablanca strategy is to buy time. In the movie, when the chief of police orders his men to round up the usual suspects, it is not because that will help find the killer. He already knows who did it. It's merely to gain some time. Routine tests keep the patient busy and allow time to act as an intervention to call mild symptoms and diseases that self-resolve. And so this strategy, I think, seems uniquely well suited to the clinic, where limited cognitive bandwidth and having to separate signal from noise are two perpetual problems for the clinician. While I agree it's a useful strategy, it shouldn't substitute for a formal workup tailored to the specific patient in the clinical situation. Let's say the hypercalcemic patient. Ordering the usual panels is useful on the night of admission. But it should not replace a good history and physical to assess for the specific individual's risk factors. Asking questions like how many bottles of vitamin D do you inhale daily,、um, how many people have cancer in your family, and how long have you had that giant lymph node on your neck again—those are still questions you should ask. So instead of ordering panels, what did our discussant focus on? Well, he spent a lot of time asking clarifying questions. Have the symptoms progressed? Has he had night sweats? Has he lost weight? He asked whether there was lymphadenopathy on exam. And again, he ordered a very short, targeted set of tests: a reticulocyte count, a peripheral smear, and an abdominal ultrasound to look for splenomegaly. The patient reports he's feeling about the same as when he did two months ago, seeing primary care. Generally fatigued. 
but not impairing him functionally. He does wonder, though, whether he's lost some weight, but not sure. The peripheral smear came back, and it doesn't show any abnormal white blood cell or red blood cell morphologies. His reticulocyte count and his index are borderline low. His serum iron and total iron binding capacity are both low, while his ferritin's about 200. And the abdominal ultrasound that was ordered, it did show splenomegaly. Yeah, so, I mean, this patient has splenomegaly, a low reticulocyte count, loss of appetite, maybe weight loss, maybe not, and generalized weakness without night sweats. I I think we're making a story that is sounding uh, concerning for a lymphoma. And I think my next step is going to be to look, I would get a CT scan to look for lymphadenopathy that we haven't been able to feel on uh, exam as a way to possibly guide a diagnostic, a further diagnostic workup. And one thing we didn't talk about that this would be a weird presentation of, but I guess is possible with an unexplained uh, anemia, normocytic anemia, is myeloma, like a plasma cell dyscrasia, and whether there's benefit in sending like a, a little bit of a myeloma workup with an immunofixation, um, well, protein electrophoresis and immunofixation in the urine, and then uh, uh, light chains. You know, I'm I'm struggling to figure out exactly what might be causing his splenomegaly. And, you know, common explanations for splenomegaly. So you have hepatic disease, right, as a a portal hypertension causing splenomegaly. Uh, You could have uh, hemolytic disorders uh, that are leading to splenomegaly. Hematologic malignancy is probably the big one that you think about. And lymphoma, especially, we haven't seen it. Now, if you're a regular listener of Hoofbeats, you should recognize this as the beginnings of our discussant's diagnostic schema for splenomegaly. But uh, don't worry, we just did a schema for the last episode, so we'll move on. Though if you do want to go down that rabbit hole, I will make a quick plug for the clinical problem solvers who have an incredible collection of schema, including for splenomegaly, so be sure to check out their podcast and app if you haven't already. And with that, it's now time to move to this patient's third and final visit to his physician's office. A month passes and the patient returns for his third visit to his PCP's office. Looking at the studies you ordered in advance of the visit, you see the repeat CBC shows he's becoming increasingly anemic. Now his hemoglobin is 7.7, down from 11.5 months ago, and an MCV of 80, down from 87 months ago. He's still thrombocytopenic, about 80,000 from 87,000 a few months ago. A serum protein electrophoresis resulted as trace-detectable lambda chain. He also did undergo a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, which confirmed splenomegaly, but did not detect any lymphadenopathy or other abnormalities. And during the visit, he reports he's become increasingly fatigued. On exam, he's tachycardic, low 100s, otherwise his other vitals are normal. On exam, he has now objectively lost 5 kilograms since his first visit. So a a trace-detectable lambda light chain is not something that screams myeloma to me. I mean, when you're thinking about myeloma, if you're getting a light chain, it ought to be like a massive lambda or a massive kappa. To circle back to the real abnormality, right, 7.7. Wow. He's gotten he's gotten quite ill. Um I'm really concerned. There's a number of processes, right, that could be causing uh this severe progressive anemia with thrombocytopenia. We we were talking about lymphomas, but the other types of um like fibrotic uh 
uh, bone marrow processes, myelofibrosis. It doesn't seem like aplastic anemia, given he has a, a, a white count. He's not pancytopenic, but you're really wondering like what's going on with his bone marrow. And we have so much evidence pointing towards a hematologic disease with bone marrow dysfunction uh, in this case, that at this point, I'm really just going to send this patient to hematology for a bone marrow biopsy. Uh, to evaluate for a bone marrow process driving his insidious progressive symptoms. If this person has a normal bone marrow biopsy, uh, then I think you're really thinking about infectious processes that are causing uh, a severe anemia of chronic disease, so atypical type infections. I mean, I guess we should talk about possibly tuberculosis, intra-abdominal tuberculosis, other patholo- similar pathologic processes like sarcoidosis, although he didn't have a significant amount of lymphadenopathy in his chest. Uh, fungal infections seems unlikely. Arthropod-borne diseases usually are sicker with uh, that can cause significant splenomegaly. He doesn't seem to have a lot of potential exposure. Certainly in our patient population, I see a lot of, I do a lot of addiction medicine, and I'm always wondering about either occult hepatitis, which he doesn't seem to have because his LFTs are pretty normal, or like a subacute endocarditis that people feel generally weak with and are tired but aren't having a lot of localizing symptoms with a non-virulent type. In the week after the patient's third visit to his doctor's office, test results slowly start trickling back in. His HIV test is negative. His hepatitis B and C serologies are unremarkable. His RPR is negative as well as his Lyme titers, but a C-reactive protein was elevated to 72. He is then referred to a cardiologist where a transthoracic echocardiogram showed a mitral valve prolapse associated with mitral valve regurgitation, but no vegetations and no other structural heart disease. He is also referred to a hematologist for consideration of a bone marrow biopsy. And it's at this point in the case, in the real world, that the final diagnosis is made. With the additional information and the upcoming hematology evaluation, what do you think? What other questions, exams, or tests do you have in mind for this patient who at this point has been going through pretty extensive workup for months as an outpatient? We sat down with Dr. Kenneth Heinz, a senior hematologist who made the diagnosis upon his initial evaluation of this patient. Finalize your thoughts, and we'll resolve this case after the break. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So our discussant has done what he can. Was he right? What did you think? 
Enter Dr. Kenneth Himes, the senior hematologist to whom this patient was referred, and the clinician who made the final diagnosis. So, as I recall, this patient it was a middle-aged man who had a history of fevers, uh, fatigue, anemia. No, he wasn't having fevers, I believe. No, no fevers. Just fatigue, anemia, and um, he was known to have a heart murmur. If you see somebody with a, with a low serum iron and a low iron binding capacity and a ferritin that's above 100, it's pretty comfortable. You feel pretty comfortable the patient's not iron deficient mm. and that all, everything you're seeing is, is inflammation. From that point, you then have to think about what sort of inflammatory disorders can do it. We also have to think about malignant diseases. Again, this patient was was scanned from top to bottom and nothing was found. You know, things that are sort of unusual presentations of infectious diseases without going back and saying, well, why couldn't the patient just have something simple like endocarditis? But endocarditis isn't simple because it's not just an infectious disease. It's an immunologic disease. And as a result, you have to think when you see somebody who looks like they have an autoimmune disorder, but none of the serologies are tip, are classically positive. A lot of adults will have, you know, 60-year-olds will have monoclonal antibodies, but you can also see it as part of a uh, inflammatory process. So I think you, you, you have to sort of sift through that sort of data and put it aside and say, well, if it doesn't really scream at me that the patient has a vasculitis, maybe there's some other process. And, Cheap and easy to get a cheap and easy to get a, uh, a blood culture. And now I'm smiling because, as anyone who knows me will know, this is my absolute favorite diagnosis. Cindy, what did that blood culture show? After the initial visit in the hematology clinic, Dr. Himes directed the patient straight to the emergency room because the diagnostic certainty of endocarditis in his mind was so high. His blood cultures grew 3 out of 4 bottles positive for Cardiobacterium hominis, a HACC organism that's part of the mouth flora. Lo and behold, the repeat echocardiogram performed in the ED revealed a 1.5 cm square vegetation on the mitral valve with the now severe mitral valve regurgitation and a completely perforated posterior leaflet. A thorough interrogation by the infectious disease consultant did not reveal any dental procedures or any other risk factors other than having the congenital valvular defect. So I took care of this patient very briefly after he was diagnosed and referred to the inpatient site for further management. It's exactly the type of case I love to talk about. The diagnosis is so bread and butter medicine that I should be able to pick up as an internist. It's so obvious retrospectively, and yet I know I wouldn't have been able to diagnose it, at least not so effortlessly the way Dr. Himes did, who's a hematologist, by the way. So I was thinking to myself, why is this case an obvious case of endocarditis to some but not to others? Personally, Cindy, and this is just coming from me imagining myself, you know, in this case, I wonder whether the reason that SPE wasn't entertained sooner was because the patient wasn't febrile. I think that plays a big part of it. I mean, growing up, we learned endocarditis as a differential diagnosis for unexplained fever. But some people might just reject the diagnosis of endocarditis in an febrile patient. I have heard residents talk like that. And honestly, from time to time, I catch myself saying things like that, which the more I think about it is really troubling to me. and. I'll explain why, uh, though it requires that we talk about propositional logic. 
if you think back to high school, which is the first time that most of us encounter this, remember sentences like, if P, then Q, because not Q, therefore not P, right? Yes. Well, so let's say I gave you this statement. If a patient spikes a fever, that patient has endocarditis. Because the patient in our case did not have a fever, therefore this patient did not have endocarditis. What is wrong with this argument? Now, the most obvious thing wrong here is that the first statement is medically false. Many things other than endocarditis cause fevers. In other words, the premise on which this argument is based is incorrect, and therefore the conclusion is wrong. But there's a second thing wrong here, which is that the way in which this argument is constructed is logically unsound. If I said to you, if you are a cardiologist, then you went to medical school. Well, that's a completely true premise, I hope. But if I then concluded, and because you are not a cardiologist, you did not go to medical school. Well, you folks out there in internal medicine and GI and room and ID and palm crick care, or maybe business school because you hated medicine, uh, you'd all probably be offended or think I was crazy. And rightly so. That conclusion does not follow from the premise, even if the premise is 100% completely true. It is a non sequitur. In the language of propositional logic, we have just committed a formal fallacy, the fallacy of the inverse, which is otherwise known as denying the antecedent. Logical fallacies are easy to detect when the content of the premise or the conclusion is this comically absurd, but it's much easier, I think, to make this mistake when the content is more complex and cognitively demanding. So, I mean, take this statement. If a patient being treated for pneumonia with ceftriaxone has an improving leukocytosis after 48 hours, then the antibiotic selection was appropriate. But now let's imagine that we have a patient with a pneumonia on ceftriaxone whose white count is not yet improving. And it feels natural to conclude that maybe our initial antibiotic selection was incorrect. Time to broaden to cefepime. Maybe add vanc. Should we add levaquin or amikacin? So here the premise sounds reasonable. The conclusion sounds reasonable. The management decision that results from all of this sounds familiar. But the logical structure of the argument underpinning all of this is flawed. Given the premise of if A, then B, you cannot say if not A, then not B. Logically, we know it's not true when we say it out loud, but our brain can be so easily tricked into saying it, especially when we're in a hurry. The same person who rejects the um, diagnosis of endocarditis based, the, based on the fact that the patient's a febrile, you can ask that person to sit down and give you a lecture of Duke's criteria, and very quickly the person would realize that fever is just one of the minor criteria, and an ephebrile patient can easily be diagnosed with endocarditis by fitting all the other major or minor criteria. Yes, Cindy. And also, we don't always get punished for committing logical fallacies. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, we get away with fuzzy or sloppy logic a lot in medicine, I think, more than we'd like to admit. We, of course, did ask Dr. Himes himself what he thought enabled him to make the right diagnosis. When I went over all of the data, um, the referring doctor had thought of all of the, the critical things and had really excluded them. I mean, that's, as I said, that's, you know, the, the, last, guy, the last guy to look is the, is the guy who gets the diagnosis. That was his first answer, which I think was just Dr. Himes being humble, because I feel compelled to point out He's the last guy to look because he's the first guy to solve the case, not the other way around. So we pressed him for a second answer. I was pretty convinced that he had endocarditis at that time because autoimmune diseases didn't fit any pattern there. He didn't fit uh, um, a malignant disease. I didn't think he was bleeding. So that's where 
you have to think about, you start thinking about chronic infection as the cause. I mean, he was quite sick. I mean, this guy did not, this guy really looked moribund. He had lost a lot of weight. And this is what a typically, a chronically ill, chronically infected patient looks like. And he looked like he had cancer, but we couldn't find any cancer. In the old days, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, as, as a fellow, particularly as a fellow at Bellevue, you see a lot, you saw a lot of acute bacterial, acute endocarditis. And again, the pa- other patients come to me now with these sorts of unusual presentations. In other words, they've been through several referring physicians and they come to me sort of asking, why is this pers- patient anemic more so, or why are they losing weight more so than why are they running fevers or why do they em- have embolic lesions? He seems to be used to having atypical presentations of endocarditis or in other miscellaneous infectious and autoimmune entities refer to his office as hematologic mysteries, and therefore he had a high acuity to detect those as a result. The same way really good dentists are able to diagnose patients with atypical trigeminal neuralgia, which is commonly misdiagnosed or takes a while to diagnose. Right. You get the sense that his illness script for endocarditis is fundamentally different from mine or yours, Cindy. Not only because he's seen so much more of it, but also because his cases you know, differ fundamentally in their nature. His attention, we heard, uh, was drawn to just how sick and exhausted the man looked. This is a bit of a side, but I love reading really old case reports from you know the 19th, early 20th century, you know, really mostly just to read the hilarious jargon like hysteria or dyspepsia. But there's this phrase, toxemic exhaustion, that's used a lot in case reports of endocarditis from that era. Because basically, back when there was no treatment for this disease, you'd routinely see it in its late stages. And so doctors would just watch as their patients became cachectic and listless, and they just kind of waste away. And that sounds exactly the way that Himes remembers his patient, conceptualizes this disease. Makes you wonder whether they'd even bother presenting this patient on a 19th century podcast. I mean, William Osler would have probably diagnosed him at a glance. Speaking of illness scripts, Cindy, we've used that term without really ever defining or examining it on hoofbeats, haven't we? And hearing Dr. Himes talk about how he conceptualizes endocarditis, it makes you wonder, How can we build better illness scripts ourselves? So I was doing a bit of reading to see if there's a cognitive tool that will help me in this regard. This might not be the perfect answer to the question, but I think building a rounded illness script may be the way to go. The emphasis being on rounded. Zhang, what's your definition of illness script? Uh, Well, I could go on and on about illness scripts, but I think... uh... Commonly accepted, if maybe somewhat incomplete definition of an illness script, is uh, that it's an organized mental summary of a clinician's knowledge about a particular disease. And what usually goes in the script for you? Or let me ask the question another way. Listeners, if you don't mind pausing in uh, answering the questions too, what's your illness script for pulmonary embolism? And what would be your illness script for urinary tract infection? Now, comparing these two scripts, are they structurally similar? And I think we're going to have to explain what you mean when you say structurally similar, Cindy. When the concept of illness script was first proposed in the 1980s, the clinical reasoning researchers thought illness scripts should have three major components. They are called the enabling conditions, the fault, and the consequences in the literature. 
To explain each of these individually, enabling conditions are things about the patient, like age, sex, comorbidities, family history, habits, occupation, exposures, anything that influences whether the disease arises and how it manifests. The fault would be Doctor Huang's favorite category. The pathophysiology of the actual disease entity, and the consequences are things about the disease, the symptoms that the fault produces, their tempo, their severity, their other characteristics, the associated findings on exam, on lab testing, imaging, and so on. Later, scholars added additional elements like prognosis, management at the end, but traditionally, it's been proposed that illness scripts should at least contain these three basic components. Not surprisingly, when we start off as non-experts about a particular disease, our illness script for that disease tends to be sparse. We simply lack knowledge, and our script is supposed to grow as we see more cases. But it's not just that the illness scripts of experts contain more information than those of non-experts, although they do. Rather, they also differ in what components they emphasize. But it's been noted that learners tend to focus solely on the consequences. The signs and symptoms of the diseases, while expert clinicians will have more rounded illness scripts that contain many more enabling conditions. Not only that, but when experts are given a bunch of patient-related information like medical history, medications, and travel, they are better at detecting potential connections between those seemingly irrelevant data and potential diagnoses. Experienced clinicians are also noted to be better at acquiring clinical information that would be used as the enabling conditions, which in turn speeds up their diagnostic process and contributes to more accurate diagnosis by making the clinical reasoning process more contextual. Right. For example, when interviewing a febrile patient in the middle of flu season, I might try to confirm my suspicion for the flu by asking whether the patient has myalgias or a sore throat. But a mark of expertise in this situation is not to try to confirm or reject that presumptive diagnosis of flu, but to probe for unsolicited information that might completely recontextualize my understanding of who the patient is. You know, what do you do for work? Oh, you're an abattoir worker. Hmm. So when I think about a clinical problem, the question is not so much what does this look like, but also what is my patient at risk for. Especially when the signs and symptoms alone are vague, non-specific, and not so helpful. Right. I mean, case in point. Listen again to how Dr. Himes remembered the case、uh, when we started the interview by asking him what he recalled. So, as I recall, this patient it was a middle-aged man who had a history of fevers. Uh, fatigue, anemia. No, he wasn't having fevers. I believe no, no fevers, just fatigue, anemia, and、um, he was known to have a heart murmur. And I think that really is more of an edge than you get with many of these patients. It's striking to me how much of a role the heart murmur seems to have played in his thinking process. I mean, I would have been tempted, had I been in his place, to just write the murmur off as congenital, chronic, and therefore irrelevant. But Dr. Himes was hyper aware of that data point from the beginning, which made the diagnosis seem practically obvious to him. He said during our interview, Dr. Himes actually shared some other interesting cases he was involved in that ended up having non-hematologic diagnoses, and the common feature in each case was that he made the diagnosis by focusing on the substrate, on the patient. In this case, it was the valvular defect. In another case, it was a recent surgery, and in another, it was an overlooked piece of travel history. By his account, he didn't make these diagnoses by focusing 
on the symptoms or signs for which the patient had been referred to him, you know, inflammatory anemia, barely detectable levels of light chain in the blood, and so on. Which reminds me, if you remember from our interview with Dr. Holmes, our discussion, he also asked us pretty early on if this patient's murmur got louder during the course of the workup. While he was also asking all the other questions focused on the history and physical, I intentionally didn't provide him the answer and distracted him with other miscellaneous information in fear of him solving the case in five minutes and leaving us nothing to talk about. <laughs> well, good thing he doesn't listen to podcasts. I hope. So, certain conditions like HIV. Organ transplant, hematologic or oncologic malignancies, these are consistently、um, enabling conditions for a wide array of diseases. So, going through residency, I learned to be extra sensitive to those risk factors. Other conditions are rarely as relevant, so I'm not good enough to pay attention to them. Say,、um, a heart murmur. Right, and the two expert clinicians we interviewed for this episode seem to be relying on two different ways to recognize when something subtle and commonplace like a heart murmur becomes diagnostically significant. Right, we heard Dr. Holmes talking about how he relies on becoming deeply knowledgeable about his patient as a person in a way that's really unique to a primary care provider. And Dr. Himes talked about how he became deeply knowledgeable about certain presentations of this disease because of extensive experience and the unique insight of being a consulting hematologist. And that's exactly why I don't have as a hospitalist. I'm ashamed to say that it's very difficult for me to really learn a patient beyond a long list of past medical, past surgical, social history, medications, especially first thing in the morning. I mean, I'll have my routine intake conversation with the patient and their family. I'll quickly sort through all the data points into relevant versus irrelevant buckets, depending on why they're in the hospital in the first place. And maybe I'll read the last three discharge summaries when I have time later in the day. But that makeshift knowledge about the patient—it's the only clinical context I have for the patient, and that's built in a hurry and it's very shallow in comparison. So, what do I do? In theory, if I build my illness scripts correctly from the start, that information should then activate the illness script for endocarditis through memory association for me. But is that how it works? Well, similar to what we talked about in our last episode regarding diagnostic schema, there seems to be debate in the clinical reasoning literature about whether these kinds of sophisticated illness scripts is what enables experts to be experts. Or whether these scripts emerge from the process of becoming an expert. In other words, some authors, particularly in the early literature, seem to be arguing that it's experience and practice rather than education, which creates physicians with conceptualizations of disease that、uh, allow them to instantly, effortlessly recognize some small or nuanced detail as being diagnostically powerful within a certain context. So, in this view. Focusing too much on the script, trying to appropriate an expert's script, is futile. It's like stealing a trophy and expecting that'll make you into a star athlete. Then there are other authors who have done things like create modules or curricula that are meant to train students to develop illness scripts that mimic those of experts in both structure and richness. And these studies are a great read, and the results are thought-provoking. We'll include links in the show notes, and you can decide what you think. 
Uh, I think personally for now, these are best considered to be hypothesis generating. So I just have to practice for 15 more years and wait for my white beard to grow in. Hey, I can't even grow a beard. So Cindy, what happened to this patient after he was diagnosed? The patient was transferred to the CT surgery service and underwent successful mitral valve repair as well as appropriate antibiotic treatment for subacute endocarditis. And what about his anemia and thrombocytopenia? I mean, it's great that he found an endocarditis and treated it, but was it really the cause of all his problems? How do we uh, know that he doesn't have a concurrent hematologic process going on? His anemia and thrombocytopenia completely resolved, and the CRP level trended down. The light chains weren't repeated. On follow-up visit a couple months later, the patient reports feeling fair and asymptomatic. All right. I am willing to provisionally accept that as a happy ending. For those of you who remember, we had a prior episode where a young woman presented with vasculitic rash who ended up having subacute endocarditis. Another unusual yet sexy presentation for endocarditis. Now that we presented two cases, does that mean we should retire this diagnosis from hoofbeats? No, absolutely not. Over my toxemically exhausted body. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue experimenting with different case formats. Let us know if you like the twists we've been making, or if you have ideas of your own. Remember, if you have a case you'd like to submit for discussion, or someone you'd like to come on and hear as a discussant, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at www.coreimpodcast.com or send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you to Drs. Isaac Holmes and Kenneth Himes for weighing in on this episode. Special thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Harit Shah, along with our Coreim colleagues, Shreya Trivedi and Amy O. Oh, and an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Please reason forward responsibly. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm Cindy Fain. And I'm John Huang. See you next time. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Remember to claim your CME credit on the ACP website. It's easy to do. Again, if you are in training, send this episode to an attending or someone else you think could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. You know, the, the classic example is you're trying to like send someone a letter about their results and you're like, okay, uh, let me like look and see where they live. And then the like address is wrong in the computer and you're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, finally, you find their right address and like an old note from somewhere. And then you're like, all right, I'm going to send them their labs and you write a letter, but you like can't find an envelope anywhere. And they're like, oh, we don't have any envelopes in clinic right now. And you're like, this is like the new one. That's like another level. And then finally you find an envelope and you like put it in the thing and they're like, oh, the mail rooms like they ran out of stamps last week. So like we can't send the mail out for another two weeks. And by the time you actually get to sending them the letter for their like normal results, they're back to see you for their next visit. You're like, ah, your results were normal. I don't know what to tell you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love of your credit card rewards? Tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. 
take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.